Mike Palmer here. Thanks as always for listening. We made it. Episode 400 is here. We have a special episode for you today where I brought in three contributors over the years to Trending in Education, beginning with my wife, Dr. Robin Naughton, who's been with me both on the air and supporting the development of the program on the back end, particularly over the last couple of years. Then I get a little bit of time with Dr. Mark Sanders, who's been on the show several times talking about media literacy and civic engagement and public philosophy. And then I conclude with uh, Mike Merrill, who's been helping of late with the editing of some of these shows and contributing also to the great programming that's been coming out here. Hopefully you enjoy the conversation. It's been an amazing ride so far. I genuinely believe that the best is yet to come, but for now, Please enjoy this conversation. It's episode 400 of Trending in Education. And thanks so much to you, the listeners, for helping us get to this point in our journey. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Episode 400 is happening. We're in the midst of it. I'm joined by the lovely and talented Dr. Robin Naughton, who also happens to be my wife, also known as my better half. Robin, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and to be on the show again. Been a 400th episode. 400th episode. It is, in fact, your third appearance. So you now qualify for a refrigerator magnet, although your many talents in support of the show have already earned you that status. But now you're officially there with your your three appearances, beginning with The Citadel from Anaheim, California, which was very exciting. We were out there for a podcast movement conference back in 2017. The Citadel, which was our spinoff show where we would talk about Game of Thrones, was four or five episodes in. Scheduling-wise, I think Dan and Brandon were both unavailable, so I needed to get a show out because it had to be timely. It had to be right after the episode came out. We recorded the audio for it back in our hotel room in Anaheim, where we were for Podcast Movement. So that was your first appearance. It was. Your second appearance, almost as storied, if not more, was recorded on Mother's Day because we didn't have an episode ready for the following day. And also because you got plenty to talk about. We wound up talking about introversion and librarianship and uh, a lot of how's digital gonna intersect with library spaces, uh, which is a really interesting theme. It's a topic that's been coming up in a bunch of different ways in the past. Uh, but now you're at Queens College. Can you reintroduce folks to who you are uh, professionally in the world of learning? Oh, yes, absolutely, Mike. I'm currently at Queens College. I'm an assistant professor, web and digital services librarian there. I started at Queens College last year. And my focus at Queens College right now is really thinking about their digital work and their digital services. My background is in human-computer interaction. Specifically, I focus on UX, on user research, and how do we design websites and systems to make it easy for people to use and also for them to enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, thinking a lot about that and also thinking about just the digital divide and literacy and how we can help, particularly our students, learn how to use technology to enhance their life and work. Yeah. And 
with the pandemic, it became even more important that our students get this skill set because what we're moving into right now is a very hybrid world where technology is an important component to that. And the students have been struggling in some cases with yeah. the sudden shift into a digital world that they're not used to or they don't know enough about. So yeah. part of what I'm trying to do is think of ways to help students, faculty, staff, everyone really learn the technologies that is going to help them in the day-to-day -day, that is going to really um, bridge these divides that we have and we yeah. do have divides so yeah. that's where I am currently in terms of all of this I'm glad I'm here for my third episode here on, on the podcast I'm very excited about it I get a refrigerator magnet so yeah looking forward to that so you've been a listener you you manage our web presence yes. uh, there are many dimensions you're married to me so you have to <laughs> su suffer through me talking about the podcast all the time <laughs> what's it been like in terms of being along for the ride and then in particular since I left Kaplan you've become more of a principal member of a relatively small crew yeah. who's trying to pump out a lot of content on the regular. How's that all been? It's been really great becoming more involved and in learning more about how the podcast is put together and how that works. I remember when you guys started and I was listening, it was pretty awesome to just get it up off the ground. At that time, People were still relatively new in terms of thinking about podcasts and even just going to podcast movement at that time too, to think about how do we grow and develop this podcast. And I watch in terms of how you approach that and mm -hmm. work to really build it. And if you made it to 400 episodes, which a lot of podcasts don't. Yeah. <laughs> is amazing. And then in terms of the last year or two or so since he's left Kaplan, helping with the website. I, I love websites. It's what I do and I really enjoy it. And this is such a fun project to be part of. I get an opportunity. Not only do I listen to the show and I can understand what's going on and learn more about those discussions you're having about what's happening in the field, but also putting the website together means that thinking about ways to make it more interactive, ways to really draw people into it and really build it out and to have something that, you know, really is representational of the podcast. It's the more visual side of the podcast in, in many ways. It's been a lot of fun doing that. And I'm looking forward to helping you in that way to help it grow even further. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that building out interactive sites and making things easy for people to access. Yeah, video. Kind of video. Yeah, video. Video. I like to say <laughs> I have a face for podcasting, but people don't have to look at my face, but they may discover through video content that they really love, which is something that's been interesting for us. We, we briefly had a YouTube presence for trending in education, but, but turned it off. So I think the idea heading into the fall is really across trending in ed and then some of the other new shows that, that we've launched as well is that we want to grow more of a, a network so that we would have a series of different shows that we've even, you know, discussed whether you might launch a show. Any thoughts on, on what we have on the table so far, what you've been watching around trending in education and how you're thinking about content and where we might take things? Certainly the idea of launching new shows is a great idea. I think as I've been listening to the shows and really helping and seeing them and even putting together the site and pulling a lot of the data down, you start to really see themes throughout. 
And I think one way to grow and develop is really look at those themes and see where they can bring more novelty and you can go deeper in some of those spaces. Yeah. So I do think in terms of the, the next 400, we're launching different themes so people can go deep into it. And I, I am thinking about a podcast and I, I, I need to spend a little bit more time going deeper into it. But I do think about something in terms of websites and digital learning and even just even thinking about accessibility and also DEI. I'm just like, oh, you know, yeah, DEI, DEI. So diversity, equity, and inclusion. Also, uh, UDL is something UDL, you and I yeah. have talked a lot about and really the intersection between DEI and UDL. And also UX, because so for me, part of my research that I'm looking at really covers those three pieces and what, where I'm going to be spending my time going forward on this tenure track position is at the intersection of these areas. Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating at that intersection, because when you're talking about digital divide and digital access and, and accessibility, you're also, when you're also talking about the designs of sites, how do websites get designed, what works and what doesn't work, and how do these things interplay? If you're, and universal design for learning in that strand of things, it's really thinking about how do we design these things so people can learn? What happened with COVID is that students were suddenly thrust into this world with really not well-designed <laughs> systems. And that impacts learning, that impacts the way they can take in that information and the variety that is available to them. Yeah, I know you've talked a lot about the research in the mental models that people bring to websites or bring to products or experiences. It does feel like everyone's mental model of online learning mm -hmm. was updated somehow. Yes. Many people had bad experiences and then now we're heading into this phase where we could snap back. Uh, Dr. Steve Jordan's uh, friend of the show, also a magnet holder, had really interesting conversation with me about how we may just want to snap back. Also, if you think about pandemic fatigue, mm -hmm. everybody's just tired and not having to worry about the things we've had to worry about for a while is very appealing to some folks. Yeah. How do you think about the evolution of mental models and the emotional feel that people might have behind maybe a more cognitive mental model. If you're talking about access and people seeing digital learning as part of their own life story and their own opportunity to grow, how are you thinking about that stuff? In terms of mental models or in terms of just even the idea of snapback, I think some things might, but I do think there has been a, a shift. And at this point, I'm not going to say it's a paradigm shift because we don't know enough, but there has certainly been a shift in terms of online education and the, the models that we had before this pandemic, the experiences or the ideas that this is the way online education is, and this is the perspective of people going into online education. So if you've never done it, you have one view. If you've done it, you have a different view. And you all have an individual view that impacts your mental model of that particular situation and that particular context. In what's happened, I do think that because uh, everyone has had some thinking along online education as a result of this pandemic, whether they wanted to or not. Yeah. 
means that the mental models that we are working with have shifted as well. There's more to be done in terms of understanding what those models are, but what those models suggest to us is we have to be prepared for people to expect certain things and different things than what they've had before. I, I think about the students at Queen's College right now, and some of them are very ready to go back to in-person because they had such a bad online experience. Yeah. Uh, but there were aspects to the online experience that was good that made them think that, okay, maybe this piece of it is okay. Right. Uh, that piece was terrible. I've had students who were just like, this was bad. This system was bad. That was bad. But it was nice to be able to do X. Yeah. And I think going forward, being able to identify those models and yeah. being able to say, how do we develop for these models and how do we really teach people what they need to learn to be successful in this new model. And this is not just for students, this is also for faculty and for yeah. people who have never wanted to teach online or anything like that. And suddenly they're forced to do so. And the, the first step in doing so is just take everything that was in face and put it on a website and assume it's online education. And so what they've learned is that doesn't actually work. Right, right. Um, and so those models do have to get shifted. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I was doing my dissertation, that was one of the models that um, was there. It was My dissertation was on library websites for teens and these teen librarians, someone went to them and said, hey, you need to build a website for teens. And so they took their PDFs and they put it on the website yeah. and they call it a website. They just put their baseball cap on backwards on the, the PDF <laughs> and gave it a skateboard That's for teens. And then when, so when I went in to do my research on these sites, what you find is that the, the thing that was missing is that teens were much further alone than, they, than, than we thought they were. Yeah. And taking something that because it works in person or face-to-face -face and putting it on a website doesn't make it functional in the way that it should be. It doesn't make yeah. it really teaching or- yeah, Even the concept of a website to a yeah. teen, it's probably more of an app or it's something you're accessing through a social platform. And then even the social platforms that they use, those contexts are different because it's more likely Snapchat and or TikTok yeah. and or discord and yeah. many of the hashtag olds who frequently are librarians uh, <laughs> in, in these contexts may not actually understand and that's the whole user-centered aspect of the design if you actually understand how these users are engaging with technology and are ready to build their own mental model of what a library is and how i can digitally engage with the resources that I can get through a library. That's why I find it's very rich space to be interested in because it is in many ways the proving ground of new models. Robin, thank you so much uh, for joining. Any final thoughts as we're wrapping up here? This has been great. Congratulations. It's amazing that you are at the 400 episode. I'm glad I was able to help any way I can with it. And I look forward to more and it's, it's exciting. Awesome. Dr. Robin Naughton, my wife, we didn't even get into parenting. Maybe next time, maybe that's the podcast that needs to be launched. But, uh, but we talked about education. We talked about librarianship. And thank you so much for everything you've done. There's no, no way this show would be here. There's no way I would be where I am without you. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you. I'm very glad to have been on the show. This has awesome. been great. Awesome. 
Fantastic stuff with my wife, Dr. Robin Naughton. And next we have Dr. Mark Sanders, who is a philosophy professor at University of North Carolina in Charlotte. He's been very interested in topics of civic engagement, media literacy, and the role of public philosophy and critical thinking. We've had Mark on the show several times. It was great to get him back. He's also been an active listener and someone who's engaging throughout. I'd encourage our listeners to engage in the same way, and we'd love to hear from more of you over time. And with that, let's take it away with Mark. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very pleased to be joined again by Dr. Mark Sanders, a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Mark, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you, Mike. It is always good to be here. Yeah, and we were we were rolling back the years uh, earlier to to think about your different engagements on the show. You've been on the show a handful of times, depending on how many fingers are on your hand. You're also a longtime listener. Is it fair to say that as well? You're someone who's listened to the show for a little while. It is absolutely fair. I've been listening to the show since the very beginning, since you were thinking about doing it and then actually doing it. One of the things I love about the podcast is it has been a regular and steady stream of content since you uh, started. Unlike some other podcasts, uh, you don't take these long hiatuses. You've been on the show wearing a few different hats, but generally as someone who who cares about philosophy, someone who pursued a doctorate in philosophy, is now a lecturer. You've also been very involved in civics and civic engagement and digital literacy. Those have been a lot of the themes that pop to mind. I know you've been on around elections with us in the past, and I believe we've talked about John Dewey, and there's, I think you also referenced the, the, the relevance of existential philosophy, particularly on the other side of World War II, likening the current zeitgeist where we are today. In some ways, maybe there are some lessons to be learned and some things to be drawn from that historical period and and a lot of the writings of Camus. And you also talk frequently about Richard Rorty and other uh, philosophers, which has been nice to sharpen up our audience a little bit, keep them on their toes, keeping them frisky about philosophy. It certainly had me have to dial up my game to make sure I can hang in these conversations. But any reflections from you in terms of what we've talked about and what message you've been trying to get out when we've had conversations in the past? Yeah, so it's great to come onto a podcast like this and talk about philosophy because it makes me talk about it in terms that the non-philosopher would know, mm-hmm. uh, non-academic philosopher would know and, and, and understand. So I think that's one of the problems with, with philosophy. It's very easy for philosophers to talk amongst themselves in conversations that no one else understands. And I don't really get a lot out of those conversations. So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy to have a platform uh, like Trending uh, in Ed to talk about philosophy. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. Philosophy definitely centers who I am and what I'm trying to do. Anything I am interested in, I'm always interested in a very kind of deeply philosophical understanding of it. Uh, But the philosophy that I'm most attracted to is existentialism or even or pragmatism. You mentioned uh, Richard Rorty. I'm definitely a pragmatist and I'm always looking for the practical value of philosophical ideas. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so when I've been on uh, this show is to talk about a number of different related concepts in terms of digital media literacy, student voting specifically, but also the larger context of like community engagement and what's called service learning. Mm-hmm. So breaking down the walls between the 
academy and the community outside of it and students doing experiential learning is the term that I like yeah. better. So I've been on to talk about all of those things. I do see them as interrelated in a lot of ways. And, and I've been happy because trending and education is the sort of podcast, like I mentioned, it's a constant stream of content and the variety of topics is what I really like about it. And there are some I'm more interested in others. I'm always interested in hearing what, what you're doing and what, and what topic you're doing. But I can focus on, on kind of certain ones and really look at those. And I've been fortunate enough to hear folks on your podcast that I've then connected with mm-hmm. and in different, different areas that I've gotten to know and work with. And so I really appreciate that, that, that opportunity I got from listening to and being on the podcast. Yeah, and it's, it's also like in an active way is the way I would say you've engaged even prior to appearing on the show. And truth be told, we went to college together. We know each other for many years. But I think part of why getting you on the show when we did, which was relatively early on your first appearance, was that not just wearing the hat of the, the philosopher and the person, the public intellectual who cares about what we're doing with uh, our educational opportunities, with rising talent, to teach them how to be good citizens, all that stuff's super relevant. But I also feel like you've been a good example of someone who's been critically engaging with what we're doing, actively engaging and then reaching out to have conversations with folks who have appeared on the show. Most of the podcasts I listen to, I try to listen to them and then engage with them somehow. Some of the couple of really big ones I don't because they're not gonna answer me, but (laughs) some of the ones that I like because there's there's an interactivity there uh, Mm -hmm. and I can kind of, on social media usually, uh, kind of tag them into them, but also I just look up who they are and even email them, especially if they're an academic. But I've talked to folks, college professors, but also folks that you've talked to in high school who have done some really interesting things with digital literacy and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the intents of the show is to not be overly narrow. I I think there's a risk that happens, particularly in education. I imagine it also happens in philosophy in that people within a particular uh, wormhole, rabbit hole, whatever you want to call it, deep area of expertise, wind up just talking to each other about very arcane components of that area of expertise and they lose the opportunity to connect what they're saying to other conversations other folks who may not have maybe majored in philosophy or even necessarily thought of themselves as able to hang in a conversation about philosophy does philosophy have a problem in getting out to a broader appeal i've seen some of the stuff that you do and others like you on philosophy twitter are doing there is a lot going on and it does feel like it's much broader than I'd say a traditional understanding of an academic community. How do you think about reaching new people in philosophical conversations, critical thinking about the world around them? Um, Any perspective? Yeah. So just real briefly, there's a bunch of people who are doing this kind of engaged philosophy, some public philosophy, there's a public philosophy network, there's people on social media, on philosophy, Twitter, who are doing these things. And, and there's different discussion about how the best way to, to have outreach is, but there's a lot of people who write, there was the stone in the uh, New York Times, which is a philosophy column. And there are other venues out there that are reaching a broader audience than just philosophy. I think the more of that we have, the better. It's difficult sometimes to do that on top of teaching responsibilities and everything else. It's 
been more embraced by more people and more senior people too. There's still some really stodgy folks in philosophy. I know it's hard to imagine, but yeah, but there's more and more people. Who, it's not just kind of young millennials, new mm -hmm. folks, although they're really changing things. Yeah, uh, there's some more. There's some more established folks who are embracing the notion of publicly engaged philosophy. But I actually wanted to, if you don't mind, turn that question of breadth and depth to you because yeah. I, like, and like you said, we've known each other for a while and we talk about a lot of stuff, including this show, but I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I actually would like to hear more about what you have to say in terms of how you understand this podcast in, in, in that kind of tension between breadth and depth. Because I've said there's a wide variety of topics, but I'm interested in how you envisioned the topics that you covered in this podcast at the beginning and mm -hmm. how you feel it's going now and how you want it to go yeah. in terms of the wide variety, because you really do have a wide variety of topics, but also guests ranging right. from people who run businesses to teach at different levels. All that stuff. So I'm interested in, and I want to know what you know about that breadth versus depth question for, for, the, for your own podcast. What I'm trying to do is give room for conversations mm -hmm for everyone who feels like they have a relevant story to tell about where the world of learning, where the world of education is going. And I feel like too often those conversations are siloed and people within a particular silo aren't hearing a more diverse perspective, just a different perspective. Like I think of Thomas Kuhn's uh, you know, Structure of Scientific Revo uh, Revolutions. There are different paradigms out there. I would say the way a philosophical understanding of the world to me is as relevant, but just very different and incommensurable with most astrophysicists understanding of the world. And we all need to be able to flip modes to say, okay, if I'm thinking about this like an educator, I'll think about it this way. If I'm thinking about this like a CEO, I'll think about it this way. If I think about this like a philosopher, I'll think about it this way, and the more you're able to shift mental models and be flexible in your thinking, the more able you are to respond to the, the VUCA world in which we're living in, the volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world that we're living in. It's no longer a very structured world, so you have to be ready to let go of a, a model that no longer works for you. So the more you have flexible access to different mental models, and I think you need to be a very omnivorous forager in your explorations so that you don't get stuck in a narrow slice that ultimately becomes irrelevant. Any thoughts looking ahead? We we're uh, just completing our 400th episode of Trending in Ed. We want to continue to run this show for another 400 episodes uh, or more, but uh, we're also looking ahead coming out of the pandemic and uh, there's talk of a new normal. You're on an academic schedule to a large extent. The fall semester, the new academic year, heading into the fall, heading into the future. Any any initial thoughts since we're a trend spotting show thinking about learning? I'm, I, I think generally you always want to from the past and put it into the future and you change, you moderate or adapt your behavior to changing circumstances. And that's always happening. But I think the pandemic coupled with new technology, coupled with the social political landscape of this country and the world right now is especially locatable. We locate at a certain time. And as we emerge slowly, you can kind of look back like, oh yeah, I learned this about myself or about things. And I do miss this about 
quote unquote normal life. But this part was actually fine. This part was actually, I'm interested now in doing more of this stuff. So in terms of whether it's using video conferencing or Zoom for seeing more talks or going to more panels that I would normally go to yeah. or even having office hours. And this is, I'm going to do that. I think we reevaluate the things or the choices that um, we make. And I think we should always be doing that, but this is a special clear time and clearly demarcated and very clearly substantial from, for most people. So beyond that, I think it's an interesting thing that for all of us look back at what we did and what we learned from it things wouldn't be the same than they were no matter what happened. Things are always going to be different, but right. there are some more major changes in how we interact with each other because technology is changing so quickly. It affects how we interact with people. And it's always good to reflect back on how the media and technology changes how we behave. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Always amazing to get you on the show. Dr. Mark Sanders, senior lecturer, UNC Charlotte philosophy department, also, just a swell guy. Mark, thanks again for being on the show. You're welcome. It's always amazing to be here in your presence, even though not really in your presence, but virtually. Always great to have Mark Sanders on the show. He's been a real support throughout. It's great to get the perspective from listeners as well. And that's something we'll be trying to do more of in the future. To conclude here, I'd like to bring in another voice. This is Dr. Mike Merrill, who has helped me with the editing of some of our episodes of late and has been giving me more critical feedback really throughout the run of the show. And I really have appreciated that. We recently had a conversation about the 400th episode, and we also touched a bit on the recent acquisition of edX by 2U. Really fun conversation, and for all of these conversations, we'll be sharing them out as episodes in the near future. Thanks for listening, and let's pick up here with the conversation with Mike. Welcome to Trending in Education. We're talking about the future. We're talking about learning. We're talking to Mike Merrill. Part of this may be used for episode 400 of Trending in Education, so we're going to try to get some gravitas out of this appearance. <laughs> but uh, Mike, welcome to Trending in Education. Hey, thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Yeah, and truth be told, you have worked on the other side of episodes. You That's have right. edited shows for Trending in Education, and uh, you've listened to shows over the years. Uh, you were very helpful to me in terms of increasing our throughput and figuring out how, how to think about maybe scaling some of the back-end editing capabilities. Before we get to that, we always yeah. like to begin with your origin story in relatively short order. Can you share with us what got you to this point in your professional life? Sure, absolutely. Mike, I, after I got out of college, my first job right out of the gate was as what we called a programmer back then, not a software engineer, certainly not even a developer, a programmer. I was writing COBOL for the Department of Liquor Control and in Montpelier, Vermont. Nice. And it was nice. It was a great first job. I, I would come down the hill from my mountain hideaway in Montpelier, uh, a lot of times running late. And basically wintertime in, in Montpelier, Vermont, I had icicles in my hair and I'd sit there and drip. Yeah. I'd try to write inventory software to control the liquor that flowed around the state of Vermont. It was an interesting job, but uh, a lot of times I got to be honest, it was a government job and I hate to play the cliche here, but they would give me three weeks to do something. Yeah. I was young and energetic, get it yeah. done in a couple of days, and they'd say, that was a three-week job, so we'll get you another one in 
when three weeks is up. Yeah, good enough. Uh, good enough for government work means something. Apparently, is what you're saying. It does, and but it was great. I would sit around and I have all this time to read the trade journals, like Mainframe Today, and uh, I don't know, I'm making this up. Government uh, services information. But, and they already then were talking about how computers weren't just going to be about numbers, but were going to be about communication. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, this made me want to go get a PhD in English. But probably what else made me want to go get a PhD in English is I got a nice fellowship at the University of California, Los Angeles. And after having icicles in your hair, that sounded terrific to yeah. this, this young guy. I ran out there, got a PhD, taught quite a bit, and then ended up at Georgia Tech, where they were doing a lot of interesting early work on bringing computers and communications together, mm -hmm. set up some software back then. Instant messaging was still new as this instant messaging software. I love to tell people I was teaching 19 year olds how to instant message and it, it, to support the, the programs and, and show the other faculty members how to use the software and hopefully build some interesting stuff there. Ended up jumping out, starting to come with some folks from that program in Atlanta, doing service providing, a lot of ed tech. But that was our sweet spot, made sense. That was our background and there was some interest there. And so we, we were doing that. And then along came, you know, 2000, decline of startups and we had some troubles there. I jumped out, started working in New York for a number of different companies, SchoolNet, was an early one, yep. uh, later became part, part of Pearson. I did, as a lot of people do when they work in New York, media and retail and finance and learning a lot about what drove users on the internet, what drove users on mobile. Ended up working at Kaplan with you, Mike, yeah. uh, in the day, starting out the first online bar review for people who graduated from law school to help them train to become lawyers. That was the first one. There was no online bar review at that time. We grew that from nothing to, to a leader in that space. Yeah. Uh, that was a great experience. And then moved over to educational testing service to do some AI work there. Jumped out uh, from there with a couple of scientists to start a company called Modality, which was using uh, video and voice capture to help monitor neurological symptoms in patients. And that was great, very interesting. And most recently I've been at Clash TV, which is a, a melange of a coming together of, of cutting edge video and gaming and social. So, so that's a different kind of direction in my career, but it's been a fascinating experience. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, you kind of walked us through quite a span of time there with yeah. a bunch of different roles, but generally the show that we're talking here about is trending in education. You and I got to know each other at an education company, Kaplan Test Prep back in the day. Yeah. And then since those days, we've both moved on from Kaplan, but we've stayed in touch and started trending in education back in 2016. You've given me great feedback about the show over the years. And then within the last year or so, we were able to collaborate in terms of training you up on how I put the shows together. And then you were able to edit quite a few shows, including the transcripts and, and all these other things. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that experience like? Any observations, any thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, I have to say that experience was a revelation, actually several revelations. One revelation was seeing how the raw show became a finalized show. The raw recording became the final show that went out to the, the audience. And that was really fascinating. I always wondered how you were able to keep the conversation going and how things flowed quite well. And you have a, different, a lot of different kinds of guests, but you were able to keep things moving along. The other revelation was a personal one, Mike. As I said, I started out as a teacher of uh, English and literature and did a lot of writing work with young students of different ages, really, at UCLA and Georgia Tech and elsewhere. And 
I loved teaching writing. I, yeah. I didn't love grading, giving people grades. I always thought I didn't love that at all, but actually helping people improve their writing. I loved and when people were willing to engage, they can. You, you can actually in a couple of months really help somebody take control of the way they express themselves in, in the written form. And what I found is some of those skills are, and some of that interest I had played out in the editing space. And so I really do think that we were able through editing to really help the people say what they really were trying to say. Mm-hmm. You know, we we're able to cut out a lot of the false starts and other mumblings that we're going to cut from me talking right now. I always felt a little bit like the, the sculptor, right? You come to this block of marble yeah. and you're not actually carving it. It's in there and you're just sort of finding it. Yeah. To me, it's the, the desktop publishing ethos that was around in the 90s into the 2000s, which I think we both remember that era fondly. And then fast forwards that into the modern era And I particularly do enjoy audio as a format, although I am going to be exploring more video just because that's how people find you. How about the shows you edited? Uh, Any of them jump to mind? Do they immediately just evaporate into your your fading memories uh, right after we ship them? What struck you? Uh, You edited some of the more interesting interviews of this year, if if I recall. I certainly think they were really interesting. And again, I, I... I think you have a broad range of guests and a broad range of approaches. And sometimes you talk to somebody who has a really interesting product and it's about the product. Sometimes you talk to somebody who writes a book that's a real, has tons of ideas. It's just an explosion of different threads that you can follow. And I like them both. I have to say probably for me, two of the most interesting ones would be Michelle Weiss and Jeff Gothelf. Michelle's was a big picture. She'd written this book about the future of work and there were I don't know, a hundred ideas in that? Yeah. The, book, <laughs> you know? the, the book's title is Long Life Learning. I definitely would recommend it. It is thinking about a hundred year lifespan where your career is going to fill those hundred years. It's a big idea and it's beautifully written. I would recommend it. Michelle Weiss was a wonderful guest, but I think that was one of your first edits and that was, that was one of my favorite shows of the year. It was great. It, again, it was a challenge to edit because there's so much going on. You mm-hmm. want to do justice to everything and yet you've got to figure out where you're going to cut. So that was an interesting challenge and I really liked it. And I think that's like, uh, you have a couple different faces on the podcast, Mike, and this is yeah. your Ezra Klein face. You're the Ezra Klein of EdTech podcast that when you do these, you were able to really engage Michelle on these ideas and so many of them and follow them out and connect them. And I, it's really an impressive 35, 40 minutes of audio. I recommend anyone to listen to it. And I'll be surprised if you don't come away with four or five or a dozen new ideas that will make you think about where we're going in the future. Yeah. Jeff Gothelf, there you're more like the James Altucher of uh, EdTech podcast. It was a self-help podcast, right? It was like- Jeff's book is Forever Employable and Jeff's running workshops. His stuff's all over YouTube. Great follow on LinkedIn. uh, Great follow on uh, Twitter. But, But yeah, he's- Really interesting conversation about Forever Employable. So that one's really good too. And that was all about having people in the education space join the creator economy and help mm-hmm. really pursue that as part of their overall career approach. Yeah. Uh, so it was a self-helpish kind of piece, but uh, so that was a different challenge in that you had to be good about keeping a nice flow there. You had to yep. actually think about keeping it going and keeping it flowing. So it sounded like it was steps that you could take along the way. Yeah. What I, what uh, I love, Mike, is you're acting as though it isn't all gold when it first comes out. Basically, the, the, the software removes ums and filler words, and then it's a light hand, and then you ship it. Come on. How 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 much of an ordeal is it to chip away the Rodin, the, yes. the Michael, Michelangelo sculpture, though? I like the sculpture thing, so you're, I'm leaning towards Rodin. 
The answer is it's a lot of work and yes, to make it sound as perfect as it, as it can sound. Those are great shows, two different kinds of shows and great shows. Yeah. What aspects of the learning uh, ecosystem do you gravitate to the most that you find most interesting uh, these days? What are the areas that you're paying the, the most uh, attention to and you're most curious about where it's going to head. When you start thinking about this a little more closely, it is pretty amazing. If you think about what happened last year, how millions, hundreds of, I don't know how many millions of hours, billions of hours of classroom time that normally yeah. has not been exposed to the data realm was exposed, right? So it used to be you go to a classroom, kids go to a classroom, there's a teacher, there's, there's interaction between the teachers and the kids. And, all that's happening. All of that was on video last yeah, year. Yeah. Now, there's all sorts of privacy reasons why what I'm about to say wouldn't necessarily play out. But imagine if somebody had been gathering all that data and just looking at, for example, who speaks when, yeah. how much the teacher speaks, how much students speak, how much they speak to each other, mm -hmm. and then took that up to a grade book and just watched and saw what sorts of interaction patterns actually improve over time. If someone had done that. Yeah there would be this amazing ability to say, hey, by the way, in about 80% of the situations, when the teacher re reduces the amount of the time they talk to 10% of the total class, the students perform at this much. All of that was on video. That's amazing. The sheer amount of data that was created last year and probably yeah. not exploited for good reasons, sure. for good privacy reasons and FERPA reasons and all the reasons, but that possibility of drawing on the sheer amount of data that's created is so powerful. And again, I want to emphasize that it doesn't seem to me like this is going to lead to the replacement of teachers. AI as an augmented intelligence, which used to be a little bit of a joke. People talk about IBM, you know, wanted to push AI as augmented intelligence, but it really is a meaningful thing. The ability to draw on that data to help teachers become even better teachers is something that we're going to see more of, I think, going forward. Yeah, I'm ready to teach in VR. Teaching in a regular classroom, uh, you know, yeah. been, there, been there, done that. But teaching in a virtual space, because I have been playing around with that stuff. That technology is really interesting. That, that's interesting. So it's 400 shows, Mike. And yeah. one thing that's changed a lot for you personally in that period of time, in this, four, this span of these 400 shows, you get married, you've had a kid. Yes. I've heard you reference your son, Matthew, in a number of shows. How has... Matthew's arrival changed the way you approach shows, changed the way you think about it. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. We did a fun episode on parental education in January of 2019 when Matthew was like a week or two old. And it was right when I was in the haze of early parenthood. And I was joking at the time about how the extent of parental education, aside from a parenting class, which we wound up missing our parenting class, the only other parenting education you get is the videos that you have to watch, which basically tell you not to shake your child, which are, they're real. You have to watch them. It's a real thing, but then you're released into the wild <laughs> with this completely dependent human. And it's a pretty profound experience. I will say the way a new child learns things is so different from adults. I, I spent a lot of my life teaching adults. It's been fascinating to see the differences. I'm uh, much more interested in developmental psychology than I ever was when I didn't have any of my own kids. And now that Matthew's two and a half, it's becoming more about education and how pre-K, 3K, early childhood education becomes more formalized at this point in his life. 
and it's coinciding with knock on wood what we hope is a safe return from the the darker days of the pandemic when it was just him and my wife and me together hunkering down that hungering downtime had i not had the the purpose of my son in the home right in front of me every day i think would have been a lot harder so i had the 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 purpose of making sure he's doing well. Honestly, the, the podcast fit right in line with that too, where it gave me a sense of purpose to be able to, to get these messages out, have these conversations get out in difficult times and in some ways increasing the throughput because there was more to talk about. I did feel a sense of responsibility. When you have kids, you do wind up thinking about legacy, but also when you get older, you start thinking about legacy, whether, <laughs> you, have, whether you have kids or not, what am I gonna leave behind? It definitely gets you you thinking in, in that uh, direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 400 shows, 400 is a lot of anything, but 400 is especially a lot of half hour plus. Yeah conversations and so forth. Have you thought about one or two or three just big picture lessons you've learned from doing the show? Yeah, there's so many. One of the challenges is just getting to working memory. They keep saying now it's just three slots, only three. Like I used to be, I think it was seven plus or minus two for a while. So somehow we've lost a lot of slots. I I think the secret is chunking, Mike. It's all about chunking. And anyone who hasn't taken the learning how to learn class, Barbara, uh, it's a free Barbara, class. Yeah, Dr. Barbara Oakley. Take uh, it. San Diego State. It, it's, it's one of the very few MOOC classes that I have completed, but I did get a lot out of it. And it does remind me, I should be taking more MOOCs. So I should figure out a steady diet of, of new stuff. We didn't get a chance to talk about it. I know it's a bit of a pivot, but, uh, but any thoughts on the, the edX? acquisition by oh, 2U, wow. which was a pretty profound, a seismic shift in the world of EdTech. Yeah, that's a fascinating one, isn't it? Because edX is probably of the big three, Coursera, Udacity, and edX. edX was the one that in many ways was the most academic of all of them. It had maintained its academic roots. I think it was still owned, right, by Harvard and uh, yeah. MIT and the consortium behind it. So to see that particular gem be converted into an asset that was then sold to a public company is a fascinating thing. I'm sure there are people out there who are a little bit sad about it. It's almost like your band signing with a big record label. Because I think the way people feel about their MOOC platforms, edX probably had the most indie label. SST. It was the SST of... uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think people... And also the brands associated with it were Harvard, MIT in particular. Anyway, we'll go deeper into that topic, but uh, but I just think it was an interesting for EdTech News to be front of the business section. I always find that intriguing and I would expect to see more of that to your previous point. If there's going to be a lot of federal money, there'll be a lot of innovation seed money that will be coming into the space around making learning experiences better. I think the real interesting nut to crack is going to be one you were touching on where we got forced into online, opened some stuff up, but generally had an unfavorable experience. Now everybody has pandemic fatigue and they just want to get back to some sense of normal. There's going to probably be a knee jerk away from online, although you're starting to see glimmers and reporting of a subset of the population who is saying we thrive with online education. It will forever be part of our learning diet. And how do we design 
for that segment because I do imagine that segment is going to be one that continues to grow, which is also the reason why the edX acquisition by 2U, you do understand the strategy that 2U is taking here is to get out ahead of where this credential-based certification of my own competencies, strategically, that's been very much something that 2U's done a nice job providing to its consumers. You're going to get a credential that should make you more employable, and the pipeline is part of their thinking. Getting a few feathers in their cap in MIT and Harvard to more bolster the legitimacy of the program they're delivering, this seems to plant their flag at the cutting edge of online learning. So I think it's a good move by them. And with that, we're going to conclude today's episode. As Ethel Merman famously said, it's better to sing one song too few than one song too many. If you were intrigued by the conversations that you heard on today's show, hold tight. More to come where uh, this came from and more to come where Trending at Ed came from. It's been an incredible run to get to 400 episodes. I'm still a little bit in shock uh, and awe around awe the number of shows that we've done and the breadth and range and depth of conversations that we've had. Looking forward to much more on the horizon, some exciting news uh, to come in the near future, but I'm going to hold tight on that. And uh, thank you again for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing, share the good word, tell your friends, write us a review, subscribe, any way you can get the word out there to others. We'd appreciate it. We're really proud of the work we're doing and we couldn't have gotten here without you. So with that, we'll conclude our 400th episode of Treading in Education to the Future.